Um, it was interesting being in London yesterday and reading the London versions of the newspapers, which apparently there's an evil witch from Scotland who's about to dominate the world. And I was, I was quite impressed by that. Um, the Christian version of that is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Well, not my favorite verse in the whole Bible, but one I, I took as a theme when I started ministry, which in the old King James Version was uh, from Acts 17. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Uh, actually, the NIV has it. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Um, I didn't realize when I started preaching that that was my theme verse at the time, and in a way it was kind of prophetic. Uh, I do want to provoke you. I don't, I don't want this to be dull. Uh, I remember Dick Lucas saying once that he thought the cardinal sin was dullness in a church. And I really don't want this to be dull, but I, I want to provoke you because I can't think of anything more important than communicating the gospel to the people around us. Uh, D.L. Moody, when he was in Glasgow in the 19th century, was in a street called Sochi Hall Street. And uh, there's a lot of things about D.L. Moody's theology I probably wouldn't agree with, and methodology. But this I can empathize with. He stood in a shop uh, door in Sochi Hall Street and saw thousands of people walking past and just burst into tears. And I think there's something I would call the burden of the Lord, that if you don't have it for the people in your village, town, community, neighbors, then honestly, I think you're faking Christianity. Because if Jesus could look over Jerusalem and weep, then we have to learn. I have a friend who says he has seen people weep over the movement of a communion table. And he's rarely seen people weep over lost souls. And I think that does have to be our motivating factor. So if you're here and you're thinking, how do I grow my church? I don't care. Um, I do in that I want more people to become Christians. And I think through the church, that is the primary means. But your motivating factor is, how do I communicate Christ to a world that's starving? And um, that is the kind of passion where I'm coming from. So, maybe persuasive evangelism. Maybe I, if I, can I just begin with uh, praying and then we'll continue. Lord, we thank you that we have the privilege of being able to share together and for the freedom we have in this country for people gathered here from all over Europe and beyond, for your word, for centuries of teaching, for your Holy Spirit, for all the resources that you grant to us in Christ. And yet we come to you as people who are deeply burdened because we see so much brokenness and so much despair. We see the starvation, we know the solution is to present you, and yet we feel ourselves so inadequate. So grant that in the time that we spend together that you would speak to us through our minds and our hearts and encourage us and motivate us. And may it be that in eternity there would be people who are there because of something that was heard that you did in this place here today. In your name, amen. There is a book called The Orkney and Gasaga. It is a, I like history, and it is a book about the Vikings coming to the island of Orkney, which is a wee bit north of here. And um, the Orkney Inga saga has two wonderful Vikings called Eric Bloodaxe and Thorfinn Skullsplitter. Like, this is from the 8th century, and this is heavy metal before heavy metal. This is real, <laughs> this is real, you know, axe-wielding stuff. And uh, 
it describes, uh, at the end of one of the chapters, it describes how Orkney was converted because Eric Bloodaxe and Thorfinn Skullsplitter sailed up with their boats to the Earl of Orkney Magnus, and you get St. Magnus Cathedral there now, and he, they said to him, we are Christians, and you must become Christian, or we will rape your women, steal your cattle, kill your children, and burn your houses. And the chapter finishes with the wonderful sentence, and so all Orkney was converted. Um, <laughs> that's the secret of persuasive evangelism. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you know, we, we, we cannot do that. We, we don't do that. We are, we are attempting to persuade people. Now, a lot of people think the kind of, I'm from a place called Dundee. I'm a minister of a church there, St. Peter's Free Church, which is better known as the church of Robert Murray McShane. Uh, I run something, something called Solas as well. And a lot of people think it's apologetics. I hate the word apologetics. Uh, and I'll tell you why, for two reasons. First of all, it really does sound the way a lot of Christians do evangelism. I'm really, really sorry I'm a Christian, but maybe you'd like to become one too. You know, and just, oh, yeah, don't apologize for being a Christian. But also, it gives the impression to many Christians that unless you're a professor from Oxford or Cambridge, then who's going to do it? I mean, it's apologetics in Christian circles is a bit like, I don't know, computer geeks in the world. You know, they tend to be male and, and tend to be slightly odd. That, that's the impression a lot of Christians have. Now, it's not true, but, well, it's, it, like all caricatures, it's partially true. But it's, you see, and a lot of Christians react against that, and they go, no, 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 I don't want to persuade people in that sense. I'm going to love them. I'm going to give them a Mars bar, and then they'll become Christians with a text on it, perhaps, you know, or I'm just going to be really, really nice to my neighbors, and then they'll want to be like me. No, that's not how evangelism works. You know the, the phrase that St. Francis of Assisi is supposed to have said, that preach the gospel all you can if you have to use words? First of all, I very much doubt he said it, and secondly, if he did, he was wrong. It's rubbish. My son got engaged not so long ago. Um, how is he going to tell me he got engaged? <laughs> you know, I mean, you use, of course you use words. Where did we get this banal idea from? Now, I know what people mean. They mean, if you're going to use words, make sure your actions back them up. That's a different thing. Very, very, very different thing. But um, my uh, interest and desire here is, now is to encourage you in uh, persuasive evangelism. I want to put it slightly different as well. The reason I'm not an itinerant evangelist, I love evangelism, I love going around talking to people about the gospel, for me, this is not my natural comfort zone. My natural comfort zone would be across the pub across the road, uh, speaking to a bunch of people who want to hang me, um, or who at least have severely skeptical about what I'm saying. Christians, you don't. You may want to hang me, and you may be skeptical, but you'll just all be very polite about it. But um, my, I, I, I do want. You know, I, I love doing evangelism, but I think evangelism to work. The biblical method is church-based persuasive evangelism. And by that, I don't mean building-based, obviously. I'm using church in the New Testament sense. If it takes a whole church to raise a child, then I would argue it takes a whole church to do evangelism. And I suspect that in many of our churches, what we've got is we've got areas where people perceive they're for experts or special interest areas. So international missions, oh, they're, they're the people who are interested in that. Or evangelism, they're the people who are interested in that. 
My argument would be that your church has to have in its DNA that evangelism is what you are about. And if you don't, you're in real, real trouble. I don't see how you can do discipleship. Isn't it funny how in the modern church we compartmentalize? And so you get churches, we're really into praise and worship ministry. We're really into word ministry. We're really into mercy ministry. We're really into evangelism. We're really into international missions. And I don't understand that. You, you, we've got to be into it all if it's biblical, if we want to be a biblical church. And it doesn't matter the size of your church. I went to a church in Dundee uh, which had seven people in it in a building that seats 900. Four of them left when I went there. It's what D. James Kennedy calls a Scottish revival. Um, <laughs> and of course we, I mean, I stand up and I go, unless people are converted, unless we grow, we're going to die. And it had to be my conversion because people weren't going to come from other churches because in general, evangelical Christians don't like going to churches which they perceive as not being successful. It's much, much easier. Now we're about 250, 20-odd years later, and oh, it's so much easier now. There's lots of evangelical Christians want to come because there's stuff for their kids and there's stuff. And somehow we've got to move away from that mentality. So uh, I will leave loads and loads of opportunity for questions. Um, and I, I, please also, this for me is very personal. I'll, I'll try not to give too many personal stories, but please understand I'm speaking as somebody who's not an expert, who tries to do it, who sometimes does it badly. Uh, if I provoke you and you say, oh, no, that's wrong, fair enough, correct me. Um, but my aim is genuinely that you would be enthused and given more confidence. And I think, by the way, that's one of the first things you've got to do is give your people confidence that the gospel actually works. Because I know plenty of Christians, evangelical Christians, who believe the gospel works in China and believe that it works in the 17th century and on the day of Pentecost. But if you ask them, do they think their next-door neighbors could be converted? In theory, they say yes. In practice, they say no. They don't. Who are your best evangelists usually? They're usually people who've been newly converted from a non-Christian background because they don't know that they're supposed to be cynical. You know? And so what happens is, I remember in, I was in a church in the Highlands for six years, and um, a church that was about 40 people. It was about building could seat 400 and I remember we held a guest service. And the idea of the guest service for me was not to have a guest preacher, but I gave each of the congregation six cards to invite six people. And there was a, a fisherman's wife who'd been converted. And I laughed because service began at 6.30. I went into the church at 6, and she was there sitting up in her seat in the balcony. And I said, Maggie, what are you doing here? She said, oh, I had to come early. I said, why? To make sure I got a seat. And I thought, oh, well, God bless you, you know. She really thought that 40 times 6 and all this, there's going to be hundreds of people in here. Well, all the six people she invited were there. Most of the rest of the congregation didn't even bother inviting. One or two did it reluctantly out of duty. See, she believed that God had saved her. Actually, how he'd saved her was she'd gone to a, a barbecue that we'd done down on the beach, and her husband was interested, and she wasn't, and she refused to get out of the car. But the guy who was doing the speaking was one of these dreadful guys with a really loud voice. So she heard him. Her husband wasn't converted, but she was. Uh, he took several months to be converted. But I just thought, isn't that lovely? You know, the, we've had a, a Roman Catholic guy from a very strong Roman Catholic background who was converted from a housing estate. What does he naturally do? He naturally tells people. That's what you want. If I was asking for a name, it would be this. I, I like football. Um, now, I'm Scottish. 
So this is a lot of grief to me. It's a bit like being an English cricket fan. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, but I have a team called uh, Dundee, not Dundee United, but Dundee. I used to be chaplain for them. And one time Barcelona came to play and I went to see Barcelona. Now, I got on the bus afterwards and to complete strangers on that bus, I was going, guess where I've been? Well, I had the scarves and everything, so of course. I said, I've just seen the most, I was talking to little old grannies who were into knitting and wouldn't know what football was really, but I was so excited I wanted to tell them. This is what I want to happen in my church, is I want people to go out of a worship service and be so excited that when they're on the bus, they have to restrain themselves. Promoting or provoking people to evangelism is not about, um, what will I say? It's not about guilting them into handing out a tract. It's about them being so concerned that at night they weep. My wife works with, and by the way, evangelism in Europe, in my view, is long-term, always. Scripture Union, I don't know how they did this, but they have some statistic, and you know that 87% of statistics are just made up. But um, Scripture Union, take your time. Uh, <laughs> Scripture Union worked out that from in, in the United Kingdom, from first hearing the gospel to professing faith, the average is about seven years. It's really hard if you come from an environment where, say, in Africa or in the southern U.S., where you tell people the gospel and you expect them to be converted straight away. Sometimes you've got to be really, really patient. And uh, for me... I see that, and I see that in terms of my wife, who's worked as a social worker for many years in a particular office, and only recently have we seen gradually one or two or three of her colleagues start coming to church. I think it's very important that we tell our people, you are the evangelists. You are the people in your office, in your home, in your street. You are the evangelists. I don't believe in Europe today that we're going to have a Ravi Zacharias, a Billy Graham, or anyone like that who will come. I think we need tens of thousands of people like that, and it's to be done through the local church. So uh, let me just, first of all, I'm not going to go into all the statistics. I like all this stuff, and I study all this stuff, but sort of post-Christian Europe, you can see on the map there, basically, Europe, you can divide Protestant North, Catholic South, uh, Orthodox East. Uh, that's the belief in God. Never, and that's not Christianity. It's the belief in God idea. Um, interestingly, probably the most atheistic country in uh, Western Europe is now probably England. Uh, Scotland as well, actually. Uh, my country, Scotland, has secularized faster in the past 10 years than any nation in history. And it really is quite astonishing what has happened. And as Vaughan was talking about this morning, there is a militant secularism that's there as well. And it's being inculcated through our whole culture. It is the default position of our elites, largely. You've got uh, communism, the, re the remnants of communism, secular humanism, and so on. Islam. Um, a lot of people like to talk about the threat of Islam, and I agree because I don't think that secularism can stand up to Islam at all, because secularism doesn't get Islam for a start. Secularism has to assume, or atheistic secularism has to assume that um, Christianity and Islam are just different religions. They're the same, essentially. Um, but Islam is also a political system and a very strong political system. 
And the tipping point is not when Muslims become 15, 50%. I think the tipping point in terms of Islam will be when uh, Muslims become about 10%. I got a shock one day. I went to uh, a mosque and I, uh, on a Monday evening, it wasn't even one of the biggest mosques in our city, and we've only got 3,000 Muslims in our city. There was 150 mainly young men there for prayer on a Monday, not a Friday. I don't know one church in my city that would get 150 young men for prayer. There was a community cohesion. There was, I thought, there's no way that our society can stand up to this. Now, what I do want to be very cautious about, by the way, just as a signpost in terms of Islam is don't do the kind of I'm scared of Islam thing because for me Muslims are exactly the same as every other person I know they need the gospel and they need Christ my neighbors are Muslim they need Christ when I, I was seriously ill in hospital the first person to visit me was Muhammad not the prophet but <laughs> you know <laughs> but, but I had a vision no <laughs> But I, I've lived beside these neighbors for 20 years. I, I really don't. I really struggle to explain the gospel. But sometimes it's quite funny. I remember one Muslim guy came to me and said, Hey, Davy, I like you. I like you. I said, Thank you. Why do you like me? He said, You are a fundamentalist like me. And I went, Oh, no. <laughs> Please don't put that on the Secular Scotland website. <laughs> so, bottom line is, most of you, I suspect, and please correct me on this is wrong, will be coming from countries and cultures and towns where I suspect most people have not rejected the gospel because they've actually never heard it. They're second, third, fourth gener generation away from hearing the gospel. I do a lot of debates. I love those debates because near, I nearly always win, not because I'm brilliant, but pure and simple, the people who debate me haven't a clue what they're talking about. When you first explain you know, the, the Good Samaritan or stuff about Jesus to somebody who doesn't know. It's, you know this, it's wonderful. It's better than if you're explaining it to someone who's grown up in the church because they're going, oh yeah, this is the religious thing. This is, you know. But I remember a Chinese girl came into our church. We did a Christianity Explored thing. First week, never ever, never ever had she read a Bible. First week, first day, first hour, I, I saw her and she was, tears were pouring down her face. And I said, are you okay? And she said, yes. I said, why are you crying? She said, Jesus, he's so beautiful. He's so beautiful. And I thought, how come you get that? And half my congregation who are professing Christians don't get that. You know? And I mean, she was converted, that very first one. So anyway, persuasive evangelism. Uh, this for me is the, the kind of the important bit. Our evangelism is stage one, uh, not stage five. Now, I'm putting it like stages like this. Stage 10 is that you can repeat the Bible in Greek, even though you're English. You, you, you know, I don't know, the Westminster Confession in Serbo-Croat. I mean, you read Calvin's Institutes when you were five years old. I mean, you're like one of these Puritans from the 16th century. I mean, you just know absolutely everything. The ontological argument is for you. That's a, that's a piece of cake. It's no problem. Um, but... That's stage 10, if you like. In other words, you're very, very, very well versed in Bible knowledge. Stage zero or stage one is when you say to someone, open the Bible, they say, what's a Bible? Or when you have to say, turn to Genesis, and in your Bible, it's page one of the Bible because they don't know. Stage one means you almost can't use the word God, and here's why. 
people will say to you, I don't believe in God. And you, you know what the answer to that is? Not just suddenly start giving them the five theistic proofs. The answer to that question is very simple. It's just simply to say, tell me about this God you don't believe in. And they go, well, I don't believe in a God who does dirt, dirt, dirt. And you say, ah, I don't believe in that God either, but let me tell you about the God I do believe in. In other words, the word God is meaningless to many people as well. The trouble is with most of our evangelism and most of our evangelism programs, we assume stage three, four, or five. And for some people, that's true. Most churches in the United Kingdom, I can't speak for elsewhere, but most churches in the United Kingdom grew by evangelizing their adherents through Sunday schools, and then as they were connected with the church, and even when Billy Graham came in the 1950s, you'll find that the majority of people who came, there were people who came from the world, but the majority were people who would have gone to church at some point or other, were brought up in schools where they were taught the Bible, and so on. But now, we're at a stage where to explain the gospel to someone, it's a, it's a foreign language to them. And th that is absolutely crucial in understanding why you persuade people. You see, um, I have no interest in photography, really. I love photographs, but I know nothing about it. You invite me to a photography club, and I go in and all the technical jargon. I, I don't know what that's about. People perceive the church like that. Often, they're not hostile to the church. They assume that we are, they don't mind us as long as we're like a private club with our own buildings. We're like a knitting club or a line dancing club or a Trekkie convention. And if you don't know what a Trekkie convention is, don't worry. But you know that you can speak Klingon and, and, and talk about Spock with meaning. What Spock means to me is one of your seminars. Um, and they don't care. What really, what you're trying to do though is not get to get them to join your club to take on your particular hobby, to become like you, you're trying to get to the very heart of what it is to, to be human. And that is difficult. So I think we're, we're starting way back. Tim Keller speaks about defeater beliefs. These are the beliefs that stop people even considering. So supposing right now I went out in the street and said, listen, we're having a Christian meeting in here. Would you like to come in and hear about Jesus? No chance. Have they been to Christian meetings? Do they know anything? No. So What's stopping them? It's defeater beliefs, it's ideas, for example, like science has disproved God. I remember I went and knocked on a door once, and uh, I remember that particular street because it was good fun because uh, I don't often do, I haven't done door-to-door -door evangelism for about 10 years, but I'm thinking of restarting actually. And I remember I knocked on a door and a woman came to the door. I said, hi, we're from the local church. I'm just asking people, you know, if you're interested in what you think about God and so on. And she went, oh no, I'm Jehovah's Witness. And I went, revenge. <laughs> and she slammed the door in my face. And I, thought, I thought, okay, JWs don't have a sense of humor. You know, I remember actually one time, and I, apologize, I don't mean to offend you if you are Church of England, but I knocked on a door and this woman came to the door and I said, uh, you know, from the local church, we're asking people about whether they believe in God or not. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. She said, I'm Church of England. <laughs> so, but... Um, or another one, uh, Church of Scotland woman, I said, you know, would you describe yourself as a biblical Christian as we started talking? She said, oh, goodness sake, no, she said, we're normal Christians. <laughs> so, but anyway, I knocked on this door and a guy came to the door and I said, hi, we're from the local church. He went, hang on, I'll get the wife. Now, I don't know if that's true in, in anywhere else in Europe, but certainly in Scotland, religion is for women 
and children because we're men and we're big and we only cry when our football team loses and we only dance when we're drunk. But nonetheless, we're manly and religion is for wusses. And so, no, no, we're not going anywhere near it. So he said, we'll get, I'll get the wife. I said, no, no, hang on, wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. Me man, you man, me beard, you beard. I was trying to have an incarnational ministry with him. Uh, and he, he looked at him and he said, in Scots, he said this, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. So I don't believe in God, I believe in science. I said, really, you're a scientist? No. Nah. You study science? No. Nah. You studied science at school? No. Nah. Do you know anything about science? No, nah, I just believe in it. I suspect that a huge number of people out there, if you like, will have as an assumption that there's no need for God because science has disproved him. And that's one of the things that we have to deal with. So that's the defeater belief. I want to argue, there are others as well, you know, religion. There was a, a survey done by The Guardian in England in November uh, 2009 in which the majority of people thought religion was the primary cause of evil in society. Why? Because every time there's a bomb goes off, it's a religious terrorist. It's not Islamic. It's a religious terrorist. And you turn out to be religious and people are really scared. I remember uh, one girl came. We have a lot of students come to our church and this girl started coming. And uh, after about three weeks into the term, her parents came. I was standing at the door after the service, shook their hands, said, you visitors here? They said, yes, um, but our daughter comes here. That's her over there. I said, oh yes, yeah, she's new. She's a first year. Um, can you tell me? why are you here three weeks into term? Is there something wrong? They said, yes, there is something wrong. I said, oh dear, uh, can I help you? They said, no. I said, why not? They said, you're the problem. <laughs> and I honestly, I thought, what have I done? Was I inappropriate? Was I in her room? What, what, you know, was she scared of me? Did I try and hug her? And you know, I, I, all these things were going through my head and they said, no, let, let, let's explain, please. They said, we brought up our daughter to be normal, not to be religious. And when, we came down to when she came down to university, we thought she'd maybe drink a bit, maybe experiment a wee bit with soft drugs, party. But as long as she got on with her work, we were going to be quite happy. And then we started getting letters home. And these letters said, Mom, Dad, I'm loving Dundee. It's a great city. Loving my work. And I've got this fantastic church I've started going to. And I said to them, so you've come down here because you're scared that your daughter is going to church. They said, yes. I said, okay. So you came to check us out? Yes. Okay. How did you find us? You were surprisingly normal. <laughs> and that was great until I have a, a, a perverse sense of humor that I need to restrain my mouth at times. <laughs> and I just looked at them and said, well, you got us on a good week. It's next week that we do the child sacrifice. <laughs> and, uh, and, and they looked at me for a nanosecond as though it was true. And I said, come on, guys, what did you expect? But seriously, there are people who, if they hear their children are going to a Bible study in your home, they're going, whoa, abuse. I think our faith is reasonable. Now, I know that in Christian circles, one of the things, we go to extremes all the time, and one of the extremes just now amongst a lot of people is we've just got to love people. We've got to be really nice to people. Yeah, you've got to love people, but how do you love people? The same way you love God with your whole heart, soul, and mind. And you provide people with meals, but if they've got serious questions and comments and doubts and fears, you have to love them enough to think about that for yourself. 
You've got to use your mind. And I, I, I'm from a working class background. My father was a pig farmer, a pig farm laborer, actually. You know, he left school when he was 12, 13. But up on his shelves, there's a whole load of books by Martin Lloyd-Jones and others. He's not a great reader, but he does read. You know what I find quite disturbing is the number of middle-class Christians who think to reach working-class people, you have to dumb down. That's patronizing, and it's wrong. People may be different in how they do things, but I'll tell you this, I've met some really thick academics. Um, as my mother would say, they're no wise. Uh, and I've met people who, re I remember visiting in one of the schemes in Dundee, a woman had started coming along who was a librarian, and her husband was a cinema projectionist. And I went into his council house, flat and in the living room talking to him. He was amazing. He was an unreconstructed 1930s communist. It was just brilliant talking to him. I love talking to him. And then he says, do you want to come up to my bedroom? I went, uh-oh, this is weird. He's 70 years old, though. I can deal with him. Um, and I went out to his bed. I couldn't believe it. 2,000 books lined in his walls in this council house. Dickens, Dostoevsky, and so on. Just absolutely incredible. Karl Marx. Just be very careful with people that we don't patronize, but our faith is reasonable, and we've got to show that from the four-year-old kid through to the, you know, I don't know, 60-year-old university professor. I have a kind of wee motto that I say to people. If you can't explain the gospel to a 10-year-old kid from a housing scheme in one of our estates in, in our city, then you won't be able to explain the gospel to anyone. But if you can, you'll be able to explain it to everyone. And I'll tell you why. I've been interviewed by journalists from The Times, The Telegraph, academics, the BBC, and so on. Nobody's ever given me such a hard time as these kids in asking real serious questions. Take that seriously, please. Don't patronize children and don't patronize working class people. You know, that for me is just so important. We've got a reasonable faith. We've got the best product, and I hate speaking about the gospel in this way, but it is. We've got the best product in the postmodern marketplace of ideas. Um, I'll leave that there because I just think out there, there's a, there's a wide open market, and we don't need to be scared of anything. I, I'll say to people, someone says, you know, well, what about, how dare you say you're right? What about Muslims? I say, that's no problem. Go read the Quran. Feel free. Read the Quran and read the Bible, and then contrast the two. I'm really quite happy to do that, and I think uh, we should have more, I think a lot of Christians don't have confidence in the gospel, and we've got to learn to have more confidence in the gospel. Total apologetics, uh, I use the word I don't like, the whole gospel to the whole person by the whole church. That has got to be our motto for reaching people. You know, I think of a woman who was doing some door to door, and she knocked on a door, she's not done it very often, she felt very inadequate. She knocked on a door, and there was a woman came to the door with a whole pile of washing in her hand and two crying babies in the background. And the girl was about to say, I'm from the lo local church. And she did say, she said, I'm from the local church. And he looked at her and said, I'm sorry. She said, but can I help you? And the woman burst into tears, and she said, any possibility you could do my ironing for me? And so she did. She went in and did her ironing. Now, here's a problem with that, by the way, that story. Some Christian will go and write a book, How to Iron for Jesus, um, and here's the methodology. Stop it! <laughs> you know, just learn to look at people and see where they're at. And some people are not ready for the big lectures, but other people are. You've got to get to know people, listen to people, talk to people. But I think it's the whole gospel to the whole person, and it takes the whole church. I, I do a lot of cafe evangelism, 
And afterwards, sometimes people come and say, okay, fair enough, you've deconstructed or destroyed my atheism. Where do I find out about Jesus? I'll never do cafe evangelism unless I can say, you see, her and him and them, you go to their church on Sunday, you'll meet Jesus. That is hugely important about how it is the whole church. You have to be really patient. You see a junkie who starts coming along. They, they maybe profess faith or whatever. Six months later, they're back in jail. And everyone says, oh, I'll give up with that one. No, you never give up. You keep going. But it takes the whole church to keep going because you're going to get smacked in the teeth a lot with being disappointed and let down by professing Christians as well as by those who are not Christians. Um, maybe I'll, I need to rush through these a wee bit. I'll come back to that one, I think, just at the end. Uh, ten areas of engagement. You see, I think we've got to reach the whole. Uh, I, it's the whole gospel to the whole. I, and I really don't like dividing things up. So in my head, I keep thinking, how do I connect with people? How do I look at people? And I even, you know, I, I'll go on a train home and I'll be thinking, how do I connect with these people around? How do you connect with people in your... And there are lots and lots of different ways. You know, how do you connect with Muslims and so on? You remember that there are things in common with every culture. Food, children, for example. They're common in every culture. Um, but you're always looking. As a church, I think we need to be looking. Now, one is society. I mentioned various things there. But um, as Christians, we've got to have a broad view of our whole society. And what I mean by that is... Well, well let me put it this way. Supposing you're a pastor and you're in a ch church, you're in, uh, you're in Nottingham, here, and you talk, you're talking to me and you say, you know, I can't stand this place. I just really want out of here. My advice immediately would be resign. If you don't lo love the place and the people, get out, because that will communicate. It's like working with children. If you work with children just because you think that's my duty, I have to do it, but I can't stand the little brats, they will hear that. They will understand that. They will know that by how you behave. So I think one of the first priorities, ask the Lord to give you a burden. What does the Bible say? Pray first of all for kings and those in authority. And I, I think we get this wrong. We don't pray for the general election so that we'll get the right politicians. I'm sorry, but there are no right politicians. That's not to disparage them. It's just simply to say everyone's going to screw up. But we pray for our society. I, I live... Um, Dundee maybe doesn't have the greatest reputation, but it's like Rome and Jerusalem. It's built on seven hills. And one of them is an old volcano. And you can drive all the way to the top of it. You don't have to uh, climb up. And you can drive to the top and it's a war memorial. And from that war memorial, you can see the whole city. And I'm not really all that much into prayer walking, but I do this sometimes. I go up and I remind myself. I see all the housing schemes. I see all the posh parts. I see the university buildings and the factories and everything. And I... And I ask the Lord to give me a burden for the city. Now, that's a very dangerous prayer, by the way. But you will be involved in society. You do not get involved in mercy ministries to show people how wonderful you are. You do not play table tennis with teenagers so that you can get five minutes to tell them about the gospel at the end. You play t table tennis with teenagers because you like table tennis and you like the teenagers. You get involved with mercy ministries because helping the poor is the right thing to do, whether they become Christians or not. Men will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, but you do your good works because of your Father in heaven, not because they will see you. And that's an important lesson we need to learn. I find it intriguing that if I want to get money 
to, for drug addicts, if I want to get money from Mercy Ministries, I have no problem getting that from Christian charities and Christian individuals and Christian churches. I want to get money for evangelism. That is so much harder. And yet, what do the housing schemes in my city need more than anything else? They need more people who've become believers than they do anything else. Now, that's not undercrying the social and the mercy ministries, but it is saying that mercy ministries have to be part of the whole. Um, science, the apologetic of science. Science does not pr disprove God, neither does it prove God, but we really have to deal with this one. And I, I would suggest, we've, we've I'm, I'll give you one or two personal examples. Um, we've been part of something called Scientists in Congregations, and we hold a, a lecture maybe once every four months. And uh, we did one about three months ago, and since then, a colleague who works in a science lab, she'd brought along two of her friends. Since then, one of her friends has been in church three or four times because he was so intrigued by what was said and what happens. Now, I do think some churches make enormous mistakes here, and I, I don't want to tread on anyone's toes, but I honestly think arguing about creation evolution is an absolute waste of time. It is an in-house Christian argument that goes on so much. I think when you're talking about science, there are certain things you want to convey. One is that Christianity is very pro-science. Two is that science isn't everything. And three, that science is different from scientism. Scientism is a philosophy that says the only things that exist are naturalistic materials. We're saying, no, there is a God. Science doesn't prove or disprove either. David Wilkerson from Durham University, professor of physics there says, uh, I heard him give a lecture in which somebody stood up and said, are you saying that the universe proves God? He said, no. He said, I'm saying the universe points to God. And I think that's a very good way to do it. But we shouldn't be scared of science and we should encourage science uh, and in, in encourage what I call the apologetic of science. Cafe. Um, I got into this because I wrote a book called The Dawkins Letters, and it was, I was going to say by accident, but I'm a Calvinist, so providentially, uh, in God's luck is how I call it, um, <laughs> with a roll of the dice, uh, I ended up launching the book in Borders Bookstore, a secular bookstore. And I went all over the country because people, hundreds of people came and I realized this was great, going to cafes and doing other stuff. So um, I love doing this cafe evangelism. We go to a cafe, we arrange the meeting, I, I speak maybe for 20 minutes, people firing questions for an hour, um, and it, it just, I, I just love it. I, lo I love, the, for me, it's the Acts 17 marketplace. Now, um, I've done this for quite a while, and uh, we ended up... Uh, the guys who work with me in Solas, they ended up taking me upstairs one day in front of a camera and said, ask me questions about the cafe evangelism. Then they transcribed it, wrote it down, and we turned it into a book because I always said I would write a book, and I never did. Um, and so I've got several of these quench. We call it quench cafe evangelism. And we just look simply at how you do it, how you set it up, what kind of cafes you can do, kind of questions, kind of different things. Um, I've got several copies there. Um, this is very unstereotypically Scottish. I knew I was coming to England, so I want to get rid of some of the caricatures. You can have it for free. <laughs> so this is really hard for me to say. This breaks my heart. <laughs> but, but if you want one of those, do. But I, I think cafe evangelism, yeah, and 
not just the marketplace, public forums, possibly even street evangelism, but please, not the kind of street evangelism where you stand on the corner of the street and shout at people. How does that make sense? I remember a guy in Dundee, standing up, big, burly American guy, yelling out verses from the Bible. And I went to him and said, excuse me, I said, can I talk to you? And he kind of said, yes, kind of reluctantly. And I said, I am a Christian, and I don't want to interrupt your evangelism, but is this really what you should be doing? And he lambasted me for not caring. And I said, no, I do care, but I care what you're doing. And he said, I'm proclaiming the word of the Lord, and God can work. And I said, yeah, he can work. He can speak through the mouth of a donkey, and he can manage you and me. That's fine. I agree with that. But is this really the best way? It's the word of the Lord. I said, okay. So you're saying it doesn't matter how you do it. He said, yes, that's true. I said, okay, here's a challenge for you. I want you to strip naked and run around the city square shouting out John 3.16. It's the word of the Lord. It doesn't matter how you do it, does it? You'll get lots of attention. You understand the falsity of the argument. I was preaching on Isaiah 42 recently. The bruised reed he will not break. He does not cry aloud in the streets. I think yelling at people in the streets is not the way to do it. I honestly don't. I've, maybe in some contexts, some, there, are, there, are, there is open-air evangelism that can be done, but it's much more difficult now than it was in the 17th or 18th century. Why? Because we've got cars. Because it's hard to get a place where people will stand and listen. That is difficult. In different contexts, different cultures, maybe. Um, music. Atheists ain't got no songs. Uh, please, there's a, a wonderful, um, Google atheists ain't got no songs and you'll get a wonderful clip about that. But actually they haven't, really. But we've got loads. And I'm not, I don't, by music, I don't necessarily mean you have to have Christian music. Um, I'll, I'll give you, let me give you a couple of examples. A guy started coming to our church, blue, he's a blues guitarist and he's brilliant. He's a believer now, and he's released his first album called The Simon Kennedy Band. Two nights ago on Radio 2, they played two tracks of it. I, I, I would have said to him, don't do this. But he's done what I, I wouldn't have done. He's written, he's done an album of blues, uh, jazz music really, but basically blues and rhythm and blues. Superb musicianship. He's got a, a Polish organist with him who plays fantastic blues organ and piano. And uh, Radio 2, I've started playing it. And it's all gospel. And I'm going, okay, I was wrong. You know, you can use music in lots and lots of different ways. We had a bunch of Russian Orthodox priests come one time. And they were, they were very interesting. They sang Gregorian chant. The place was packed out. And I remember one woman saying to me, oh, David, that was so spiritual. And I said, are you a Christian? Oh, no, I don't believe in God. It was just so spiritual. I was so... And I said, it was a cappella singing, and, and my church did a cappella singing at that time. I said, we do that every Sunday. Really? Yeah, come along. <laughs> it's maybe slightly deceitful, but um, <laughs> not quite that good. But, um, you know, think about how good, but I, but I don't even mean using music in the sense of getting people to come and listen to something. Think about songs. I mean, uh, there's a band called The Verve, who have an album, uh, Urban Hymns, which is 20 years ago now, at least. And, but at one point, one in 10 people in England owned that album. It's got a song in it, Bittersweet Symphony. If you cannot preach the gospel from that song, there's something wrong with you. Guys, all the time you should be looking and saying, how does that? The best music, or at least the best rock music, is great because it asks really hard questions. Never gets the right answers. Most pop music is just sappy rubbish. But 
you know, you can use all different kinds of, of music in different ways. And I think it's Steve Timmis, actually, um, who says, think of things with gospel intentionality. Do that with music as well. Art, can artists be atheists? I did a series of lectures on that one time, and all these artists got really angry. Um, but there's so much. If you think European-wide, is there any city in Europe that doesn't have art as a major part? I went to the Met uh, Art Museum in New York, and what astounded me was the 16th century gallery, the 17th century gallery, the 18th century gallery, the 19th century gallery, packed, you couldn't move. The 20th century gallery, you could have played a game of football in. Why? All these others, religion, Christianity in particular, is shot through in European art. Again, you have to be particularly illiterate not to be able to communicate the gospel through art. I, I'll give you just one example just now. I've just finished reading a 900-page biography of Van Gogh. Do you know, I was heartbroken reading it because he started off so well. He was so passionate. He came to London. When he lived in London, you know what he attended? Spurgeon's. Loved Spurgeon. Listened to the gospel. Went back to the Netherlands to be a preacher. Ended up becoming an atheist. And his atheism, I believe, actually drove him mad. He thought the Christian view of sex was wrong. He caught syphilis from prostitution and so on. And you look at his paintings, actually, they're not all that good. The, the, I used to think they were brilliant. Artists at the time didn't think they were that good. But they sold a fortune because his brother, after he died, really promoted him and because he cut off his ear and because he became really famous. But you look at Van Gogh's paintings, you know Van Gogh's life, even just to sit down and talk with people. Art is a great way of getting into the gospel. Now, slight warning, please don't set up, in my view, please don't set up separate groups of Christian artists who get kind of all touchy-feely and go, I, I, need to, I need to have a Bible study with another artist because only artists understand me. And I'm going, go oh, grow up. You know, <laughs> you're human. Get over it. Go and share your art with an engineer. You know, don't start creating all these, oh, I'm a Christian musician. Nobody gets me. Well, just as well, get in a real life, you know, there's some, and then your music will be a whole lot better. Um, I know this is true in Britain, I don't know elsewhere, but the professions in which Christianity is more represented than any other is in medicine. And we need to think more about how we use that. I'm sorry, I don't have time to go into that. History, I'm a historian, uh, every single community in Europe has a Christian history, every single one. And again, if you can't explain the gospel using that, you are in severe trouble. You should be able to take people, I mean, you're in an old historic church, that's easy. But if you're not, you meet in a building like this or whatever, you should be able to take people around different places. Discover the history of your own community. What a difference that makes. Because there's all this rubbish stuff about, oh, Christians went around killing witches and torturing people and, you know, supporting slavery and so on. And there's an element of truth in that, but when you get into the actual detail, you realize it's rubbish. It's just myth that people buy into. Um, media. Christians in media, a contact point for the secular media. Uh, I did, I'm, I'm personally quite stubborn, so I started writing letters to local newspapers, and I just kept going. Every time there was something anti-Christian, I wrote a letter. But I tried not to be a letter of complaint, and everyone said, why are you doing that? What a waste of time. Until one day, two people came into the church, and I said, where are you from? They said, 30 miles to the north. Why are you here? Are you visiting? Well, kind of. Why? 
We read your letter in the newspaper and we didn't realize that there were ministers who thought like that anymore. Are you Christians? No, but we'd like to find out. I work on the drip, drip, drip philosophy. Keep going. You know, one of the problems we've got with Christians is we think way too short term. Can I say this? We've become a little bit Americanized and commercialized. And I apologize to any Americans who are here. But what I mean by that is simply this. You look for instant results. You want instant soup. You want instant converts. But most Christianity, it is a drip, 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 drip effect. And part of that is through the secular media. And I've worked for years, 10 years, trying to get into Scotland's national media. And the Scotsman newspaper, for example, carries an article by me now every three months. And that's wonderful because they allow me to tell the gospel and 100,000 people read it. To me, that's gold dust. Um, there's a radio station called Kerrang. And if any of you know what that is, I'd be very impressed. Um, if you're kind of under 30 and have got a beard and a wee bit trendy, then you probably know what it is. Uh, Kerrang is a heavy metal station. It's a heavy metal magazine. Uh, I got a phone call from Kerrang one day and they said, uh, we've got a DJ who would like to do an interview with you. And I thought it was one of my friends on a wind-up. You know, I said, oh, yeah, right. He said, yeah, you, you wrote the Dawkins letters, didn't you? I said, yeah, yeah. Well, our DJ's an atheist, and he likes debating people online, and he'd like to do an interview with you, with you live online. And I went, yeah, yeah, right. And they said, no, no, we're serious. And eventually I realized they were serious. So I said, I'll do it. And uh, he started off. This is, honestly, this is what he did. He said, uh, well, there's a little bit of Sabbath and we've got some Zeppelin coming up. And now he says, you know, I like this guy called Dawkins. Well, actually, I don't like him. I think he's a bit of a plonker, but uh, I'm an atheist like him. But there's this vicar called Dave. Oh, he's going to be great, you know. <laughs> it's like Donington or Nebworth he was from or something, you know. And he says, uh, uh, there's this vicar called Dave and he's written this really cool book. Uh, answering Dawkins and telling us about God. And I'm thinking, going, oh, this is an idiot. This is going to be so easy. And then he said to me, Dave, you don't believe in talking snakes, do you? And I knew instantly I was in for the toughest interview of my life. And we went back and forth, not for five minutes, for half an hour. And it was tough, really tough. It taught me not to presuppose things. Finished, put the phone down, producer phoned me up and said, Dave, we want you to be a friend of, of, of Karan. Uh, loved it. He says, I've never seen anyone. I said, no, listen, your guy match me all the whole way. I said, he was really smart. He said, yeah, but he said, I've never seen anyone match him and you matched him. And he said, he loved you. And he says, by the way, he says, over a million people will hear that interview. Give me a choice of setting up a Christian radio station or appearing on Kerrang. I'll go on Kerrang anytime. Now, I'm not saying anything against Christian radio stations, but I'm saying be very, very careful about we've got to get involved with a wider media and you just have to be really patient we do need high-quality Christian media. There is no excuse now for having poor material, uh, YouTube clips, websites, which keep staying under construction after 10 years, or which have events advertised that were two years ago. Get a grip. The website is your number one marketplace. Our, our, my, my own church, our experience is this. 90% of people who come, come because a friend invites them. That's still the number one reason. But actually, it's been gradually dropping for us the number two reason has been increasing. The number two reason is the website. People, one of the things I think you can do is if you could pr print up just a wee business card, if you've got a decent w website with your website address on it, 
You give it to people and say, you want to know what our church is like? Go and have a look. You filmed a video of someone giving their testimony about why they come to church or what you do. It's a very simple way of introducing people to the church. Um, I put it there, Quantum of Solace. That, that, that's our website. Quantum of Solace is a podcast that we do. But if I can just explain it, um, we, we do it about news issues. Like the latest one, it's 17 minutes long because that's the standard for a half-hour radio program. Um, and radio stations have started picking up on it. We, we do it and we talk about things like the latest one is transgender, the elections, um, Rob Bell, actually. <laughs> There's one or two, you know, different things. We do very short snippets, and then the snippets are interspersed by music, most of it secular music. Uh, we've got a license to, to, that allows us to do that. And the idea is, it's the kind of thing you can load down onto your phone, and you're on the bus, and you're walking somewhere, 17 minutes, it's not that long, and people give it to non-Christians. It's not a direct in-your-face, now this is how to become a Christian, but it is a Christian perspective on the world. And what you find happens is people go, I'd like to find out more. And I've had so many non-Christians contact me because of that. Now, I'm not saying you have to use ours. You can do your own if you want. Just make sure you do it well. Um, one of the other things that I did want to mention, uh, and I've got some leaflets about it here. How do people get their news today? Newspapers are dropping and dropping in circulation, mainly because they're no longer newspapers. They're lifestyle magazines for the middle classes, especially the 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 qualities, what they call them, the qualities, full of adverts. I ha I've had a newspaper all my life. I stopped three years ago. Where do they get their news? The internet. But here's the problem with the internet. It self-selects. You get the news that the internet chooses for you or that you select according to your own criteria. It's not very helpful in that way. An awful lot of people, the magazines that are still growing are the likes of Spectator, The Economist, and so on. And so I had this crazy idea. I thought, you know, what if we had a Christian news magazine that was high quality, high design, very visual, quality writing from all over Europe because we've got the biggest network in Europe. So we get Ukrainians writing about Ukraine and, and Spaniards writing about Spain, Romanians writing about Romania, Norwegians writing about Norway and saying what's going on in their own country. We write it as a news magazine, but with a Christian perspective. It's not a directly evangelistic magazine, but it's pre-evangelistic. And uh, can I ask you to pray for that? Because I persuaded my board to go for it. It seems crazy to introduce a new print magazine in the world of the internet. But the gospel is counterintuitive. And sometimes you, and it could be a complete flop. Um, and I, I invite you to take a copy of the leaflet here. And we're going to do it as an experiment once every three months for the next year, starting in May. And if it works, we will make it it is going to be Europe-wide to start with, but we'll make it monthly. And the idea is it'll be a coffee table magazine that you can have, that you can give to people, that will open gospel conversations as well. Um, two other things I want to say very briefly, and then I'll ask for some questions. Oops. Philosophy. Greeks to Goths. We all have a philosophy. We all think. And one of the key things that you have to do in order to present the gospel is challenge people in the way that they think. So yesterday I was on a recording a program for Premier Christian Radio called Unbelievable. And this atheist guy called Tony, and if you, I think it'll go out in three or four weeks. If you get a chance, listen to it. It'll be on the internet as well. And he was absolutely lovely. But he just before I came in the door sent me a text saying, I handed you a lot of stuff, didn't I? And yes, he did. 
one of the things he did was this. He said to me, I'm a moral relativist. I absolutely am. And I said to him, do you believe racism is wrong? And he's very anti-racist, pro-LGBT and so on. And he said, totally. It's absolutely wrong. I said, Tony, you're a moral relativist, but racism is absolutely wrong. Can you see the contradiction? He said, well, I feel that it's absolutely wrong. I said, I don't care about your feelings. You might feel that it's all right to, you know, go around and slaughter redheads, but you ain't killing my door. Sorry, I don't care about your feelings. And what you do is with people's philosophies, how do people think? Try and understand how people think. You can't get them to think your way, but you can get them to question. And I do think that philosophy is really important. How do the young people in your area think? How do the Muslims think? You know, um, Johnny showed me something from Ahmed Dida, and we laughed at it, and we laugh at it. But for Muslims, that makes sense. So why does it make sense to them? Why do people think the way that they think? Why does somebody ask you about homosexuality, and when you give an answer which is as gentle but as biblical as can be, they get really angry and storm out? You realize, uh-oh, there's something going on there. You've got to find out why people think. We're looking for renewed minds and renewed hearts. Um, church, and I will finish with this. Maybe go back to one other thing later on. But The church is God's instrument for outreach, not self-preservation. You know the jargon, don't you? We're not about maintenance. We are not about maintenance. I'm sorry, but in most major cities in this country, in Britain anyway, if you cannot grow a church, you're a bit of an idiot because it's quite easy to do. You can attract people who are already Christians. But you've got to go for outreach, and that's hard work. The easiest way to grow a church is to attract people from other churches. We have the best praise. We have the best preacher. We have the, you know, non-Christians don't care two hoots about your preacher or your praise or anything else. They still have to be the best. In my view, you do give your best for the Lord. But in reality, far too many of us are trying to attract people who already go to church. And what we do is we say, we'll do mission later. Once we get built up, we'll do mission. No, you won't, because if you don't start with the attitude, you'll never get it. Not unless God works a revolution in your church, which will split your church. So it's a very important thing. I, I, I put 10,000 churches reaching 10,000 communities. Actually, I mean much more than that. I began my ministry 29 years ago. If I right now was to click my fingers and be able to plant 7,000 churches in Scotland with 100 people in each, 7,000 with one, we would only be back to where we were when I began my ministry. You know, we're going, oh yeah, let's plant a church here, plant a church there. It's nothing. When you look at the actual figures and statistics, it's nothing. We, we need to plant a whole lot more. I don't get over, I can't understand people who say, we've got this big church in the middle of the city of Dundee or Newcastle or, or wherever, Nottingham. Isn't that wonderful? And I'm going, no, no, it's not. What about the 95% of people who never darken and who don't hear the gospel? Uh, an open door, church planting. Make sure church planting is not just church repotting. Creating a church for people who are plus, people like us. You know, you've been to, this often happens in my view. People go to university, they get involved in UCCF, they go to a town. There's not a town like they used to have, a, a city church like they used to have or whatever. So they just set up their own. But I don't th honestly think it's done with the purpose of outreach. And I, I don't understand why they expect that to be blessed. It's actually creating Christian ghettos. And we've got to avoid that. Um, 
contemporary biblical European churches for 21st century Europe. That's what we've got to think about. We've got to have the core of the gospel absolute. I don't change from the gospel at all. Here's the amazing thing. I find people from every culture come into my church, not because we're trying to be Malaysian or African or rich or poor or whatever. It's because I hope we're not trying to be anything like that. I just want to tell people about Jesus. And guess what? The gospel's for the whole world. So why should we be surprised when it works in every culture? I think we've got to be a little bit careful about saying we're going to try and... When I first went to Dundee, they said, who are you going to try and reach? I said, what do you mean? They said, the students. I said, no, I'm not going to try and reach students. They said, well, who are you going to try and reach? I said, everybody. And they just laughed. I said, are you serious? Of course we've got to reach everybody or we're in trouble. So, okay, um, that's a huge amount of stuff covered. Uh, any questions or comments before I make one closing comment? Anyone want to say anything? Feel free. Oh, you're like Scots. It's wonderful. Yeah. In terms of something that I find a lot is when you're speaking to someone yep. and they just say, oh, yeah, I was at church this weekend and then, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, so you're religious. Yeah. Okay. So, or they might even say, oh, are you a Christian? They yeah. may even have that. Yeah. Can I tell you, it's a great question. Can I tell you what the unhealthy way is? The unhealthy way is to say, oh no, I dissociate myself from the church. I just follow Jesus. That's meaningless to them. I think what you've got to say, it's very simple. What do you mean by religious? Just ask them a question. How do you understand religion? So you ask for their opinion, not because you presuppose that you know it, but because you're genuinely interested. And then you can talk about the things. So you can say, I mean, I would say to someone, yeah, I'm really religious in the way the Bible says. What does the Bible say? It says looking after the poor and caring for widows and orphans in their distress. The only time the word religion is used. Keeping oneself unspotted from the world. Says, Should we talk about what all that means? So it's a general, very good principle when talking to someone is, look what Jesus did. He often asked questions, not because he was a politician trying to avoid things, but because he was wanting people, he was either wanting to understand himself because he was limited in his, in his mind, in, in his human capacity, or he was wanting them to understand for themselves. And questions are much less aggressive than, oh, you're just an idiot. You have no idea what religion is. So I, I would always say, you're religious. Sometimes I might say, no, I don't think so. But quite often I'll just simply say, well, what do you mean by that? And why is that a bad thing? Or... You know, I, I, I would just try and get their understanding. And I would put that across the board for most things, actually. Try to understand what they're really, really saying. Um, by the way, you, your, your question raises a really important point as well. Most evangelism is best done one-to-one, -one, person to person. You know what's wrong with Facebook and Twitter? And I use them all, and they're really good for reaching out at, at a contact level. But you really don't go much beyond that, because in Facebook, you don't get body language and you don't get tone. And apparently on Facebook, I come across as, and Twitter as really aggressive and I'm just being myself and I'm a, a cuddly bear, you know, but they don't see that. So then they get very angry with me and then I get upset with them and then I get aggressive, no. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
please don't tell Rico, but we're kind of going off Christianity Explored. And I'll tell you why. Asking people to come for a commitment of seven weeks, they've really got to be a fair way down the road before they're going to do that. So, um, well, Alpha, whatever. I mean, all that Alpha and Christianity Explored are, are explaining the Bible over a meal. I, would, I, want, I want to go one back step. I, I want to challenge your people and you to challenge your people in your congregations. Ho- basic hospitality. No one should be an elder unless they do hospitality. No one should be an elder unless they believe in the Trinity and the divinity of Christ and so on, but they shouldn't be an elder unless they believe in hospitality because that's the biblical standard too. And they've got to practice it. Uh, we now, when we appoint elders, we interview the whole family because if the family's not prepared to be supportive, I don't think they should be elders. So hospitality, that's more important. Um, the trouble with Christianity Explored and Alpha is their programs. We live in a society which is quite suspicious of programs. Now, what we found with Christianity Explored is it works best when Christians bring along a non-Christian friend and when the non-Christian friend can't go the next week or the week after, they meet with them and go over it with them anyway.